0: Welcome to Vital Interests podcast, season three, 9-11, 20 years later. My name is Karen Greenberg, and I'm the founding director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. 20 years ago, 19 Al Qaeda terrorists hijacked four planes in a suicide attack against the United States, killing nearly 3000 people. Events since then have shaped American life, its laws, its policies, its norms, and even its culture. Over the next two weeks, we'll be releasing five episodes that provide an unflinching look at what happened on 9-11 and the consequences for us as a nation. Our guests will help us understand the legacy of those attacks and more directly, the legacy of America's response to those attacks.
1: There was actually a request that we unpublish those documents because they were full of lies essentially. And we weren't gonna unpublish the information, but that was the point in which we started putting a disclaimer on that particular set of documents saying this stuff may not be true, this is an official government document, but the government may not have gotten some of this stuff right.
2: And that's why the update of the docket that happened in the past year or so was so important because we added new intelligence assessments and, and, and if people take the time to go through them in the, chron- in the chronology, they'll discover that updated intelligence assessments in some instances completely discredited the earlier ones.
0: Those were the voices of Carol Rosenberg and Charlie Savage. Carol Rosenberg has been covering the Guantanamo Bay Detention Center since its first detainees were brought there from Afghanistan in 2002. She is the only reporter covering the prison in Cuba on a full time basis, and she has spent over 1,000 nights at the naval base there. Prior to joining The Times, Carol covered Guantanamo for the Miami Herald. In 2001, she and her colleagues at The Herald won the Pulitzer Prize for their coverage of federal agents taking Elian Gonzalez. She has also won many awards for her coverage of Guantanamo, including the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award and the ABA Civil Gabble Award. And without Carol, there's much about Guantanamo we wouldn't know. Charlie Savage is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who has dedicated much of his professional life to covering post 9-11 issues, including national security, the war on terror and the rule of law. Prior to joining the Times, he was a reporter for the Boston Globe and the Miami Herald. Charlie is the author of Takeover, a 2007 book that outlines the Bush administration's effort to expand presidential power. He won the Pulitzer Prize for national reporting on the same topic that year for the Boston Globe. His most recent book, Power Wars, was published in 2015. Welcome, Charlie, welcome, Carol. It's a pleasure to have you both here together. Today, we're gonna talk about Guantanamo, its past, its present, and its future. Uh, And we're gonna begin by talking a little bit about the Guantanamo docket and then move on to some other questions. Um, So first of all, I I wanna just start with Carol. I wanna start with you. It was your idea during uh, quarantine and during COVID, I think, to sort of reboot the Guantanamo docket which is a database of the Guantanamo detainees, who they are, where they've been, what we know about their lives after they're at Guantanamo, what we know about their legal cases. Is that correct? Was it your decision or was it someone else's decision?
2: There was an intent to move it to a different format because some of the software had become anachronistic. And, you know, Charlie and I talked about it and decided that this was an opportunity to really add almost a decade's worth of documents and some narrative to it that was lacking in the previous version of it. So there was an intention during the COVID to do this, but it became a project of a much larger magnitude than I think we, I certainly imagined.
1: Yeah, I would just add that for some years, even before Carol got to the Times, the the newsroom coders uh, had struggled with that site because it was so old and creaky and held together with Band-Aids and chewing gum that on those rare occasions uh, when someone would leave they had to just sort of slap together a new thing that the the whole database just didn't work anymore and fortunately for them there was so little movement during the trump years only one person left that it kind of survived but with the anticipation that um movement might begin anew with the biden administration i think there was a a greater urgency to fix something that we believe is the longest running newsroom, you know, data application that's still being updated in existence.
2: I mean, it was really quite a feat when they put it together back in the day. Like like Charlie said, there were programmers who were inventing this. This was before all of these applications that make it much easier now.
0: Well, I want to ask a question before we get into the docket itself. That's always bothered me. All right. So... Do you remember when we used to have press conferences where we'd be listening to Donald Rumsfeld or other representatives of the Bush administration and even later than that, and they'd say, how many individuals are held at Guantanamo Bay? And the answer would be about 780 to pick a number. And the question is, what did that about mean? Because now you've put together a database with exact numbers, should we overlook the fact that that was an about? Was it really an about?
2: Well, certainly there was a period when there was a black site there of the CIA and they weren't acknowledging those detainees. They were also not in the custody of DOD, so it may have been a bit of um, artful language. But the other part about it, and, and Charlie probably will have a, a, another explanation, is that the military got themselves all twisted up in terms of what is custody of JTF Guantanamo. So. Physically, at one point, they had airlifted a prisoner, uh, Yasser Hamdi, off the base to the States because he was found to be a US citizen. This
0: is the very beginning of Guantanamo,
2: yes. And they continued to report the same figures long after he was gone. Meaning the day after he was gone, they said, we still have this many detainees there. And I remember at the time having seen the plane go up and thinking, you know, I think there's a prisoner leaving. And what they had gotten themselves all twisted up was in terms of paper transfers, people were in custody at Guantanamo even when they weren't physically at Guantanamo. So they never really wanted to commit to exactly how many people were sitting there with with some detainees in flight incoming and going out. Um, And then I do think that there was the, the, the aspect of the black site in which people were disappeared or unavailable even military prisoners at various times were unavailable to the red cross and so i don't think they were wanting to be explicit about the numbers.
0: Charlie do you have anything to add to that in terms of just the problems that it poses as as a journalist?
1: Well I, I just think it it's one of many illustration ways to illustrate the Truth that Guantanamo has been there for a long time now, and it has evolved in many different respects from the beginning from you know January two thousand and two when the first detainees arrived with Carol up on the hill peering at them uh, to where things are today and in, in a lot of things were classified in its early days that have become more transparent over time and so I think in the early days even you know the the names of the prisoners were not public, who that you know what countries they had come from. And the total numbers were not separate and apart from and then compounded by the complexity that for about a year, there was also a CIA black site prisoner risen up the road that had some guys that uh, the military spokesman probably officially didn't even know about. And so for all kinds of reasons in the early days, they were speaking in about rather than with precision in a way that seems weird now when we know everything about the 40 guys who are still there.
2: I do think, by the way, that when we say there's 700, we have a list of 780 detainees from Guantanamo, there may be others that we don't know about, because there was a black site. Right. And I don't think we've ever been able to establish how many exactly were held there and the identities of all of them. We know some of them. So when we say there were 780 detainees there, the uh, Department of Defense says 779, we know of one addition that was never accounted for. And... That's the best guess, or no, that's the best documentary proof that we have, actually.
1: With some stray references in the Senate Intelligence Committee's torture report that give us the best information about the erstwhile Gitmo Black site.
0: Well, that's one of the things that I found most uh, perplexing about uh, Guantanamo and much about the war on terror is the acceptance of imprecision in the way uh, we talk about it. I found one of the most amazing things about the Guantanamo docket is that even though I've sort of known how many were from Afghanistan or from other countries, actually seeing the numbers in the aggregate, to me, makes a difference. And I'm wondering for both of you who have reported so granularly and both you know, in, in the big picture about Guantanamo, what the numbers have meant differently for for you. Charlie, can we start with you? An example is
1: there's been certain policy problems that have arisen with the efforts to close Guantanamo that date back to the second term of the Bush administration that are very nationality-specific. Most famously, Bush and then Obama administration were bedeviled by the problem of large numbers of Yemenis, most of whom were uh, fairly low level in terms of the the threat they presented, whether they had expertise in anything or just sort of foot soldier doofuses, but they could not be repatriated because Yemen was such a mess. And they, they you know, they kind of put their toe in the waters of repatriating a few to Yemen. And then the Al-Qaeda's Yemen uh, affiliate tried to blow up a plane coming into the United States on Christmas in 2009. And that was the end of that. They were not going to send more people back to a place where there was not a strong central government that could be relied upon to keep an eye on them. And so you would see all these other nationalities disappearing from the list as the Obama administration winnowed it, but the Yemenis stayed and became a larger and larger proportion of the whole, so that to some extent, the, for the Obama years, the Gitmo problem was overwhelmingly a Yemeni problem. So that's one way in which being able to rack and stack these detainees by the criteria like nationality was illuminating. And another quick example, is, which relates to the same issue, which is fears of recidivism, of of releasing people who then uh, return to jihadist activity rather than just trying to go on with their lives quietly, uh, has to do with detainees who were let go and then uh, turned out to get back involved in Al-Qaeda or Taliban activity. And a large amount of that statistically came from bulk repatriations in the Bush years towards the end of Saudis and Afghans. There were huge amounts of Saudis and huge amounts of Afghans at Gitmo at its height. And because we had a Afghan government we were working with and we propping up, which we see now as a hollow government, but in case it looked, maybe looked different in 2007. And certainly the Saudi government is a very strong government. The Bush people said, let's just get rid of all these people with the exception of maybe a few highly uh, important individuals. And those large scale repatriations of Afghans and Saudis uh, from those years had a high number relative to others of recidivist activity and and led to the the Obama people having a more sort of calibrated approach to deciding who they were going to recommend for release. And so that's seeing those numbers of Afghans and Saudis on the departure list uh, gives you a sense of how Gitmo evolved and how the effort to wind it down created new problems that other policymakers then had to adjust course uh, in response to.
0: Why do you think there was this choice to do these bulk transfers, these bulk releases, when obviously, I'm sure a number of people in the administration were talking about the potential for recidivism? What was the idea? Was it the the government that they were being released to would be able to monitor them sufficiently? Or was it just a kind of no irresponsibility, what precipitated that? Because if you think about it from a security point of view, you would really be thinking about sort of an articulated discussion of each case. So how did that happen?
2: Well, certainly the big plane loads of Saudis that went back was at the request of the Saudi leadership. The Saudis were deeply offended by the idea that we had picked up all these people and had them in these conditions that looked quite inhumane, particularly the early photos. Um, you know, I recall that by '06, the Saudis were sending Saudi airliners to come pick up their prisoners and the uh, American military was bringing over busloads of uh, up to 20 or so, maybe 28 uh, detainees at a time had their shackles taken off at the bottom of the plane and they would walk up the steps and get into basically an all first class cabin and this quote unquote rehabilitation would begin. The Saudis wanted their people back. I think the answer to your question is many of the people who left during the Bush administration were allies of the United States in either the war on terror or the invasion of Iraq. And through diplomatic dealing, people were released without the kind of analysis that you're talking about. That analysis only comes later. The the Supreme Court essentially forced them to set up these review panels called combatant status review tribunals. And by the time that those had begun, more than 100 detainees had left. And if you go through the docket, you can see it because there's such a like almost minuscule paper trail on those people. We don't know a lot about them because they had already churned them out before they started setting up review panels that had documentation that we could uh, visualize. From the point of view of a historian, just this is the archives, right? I mean, apropos of what you're about to say, so maybe we shouldn't jump ahead of it, but it is very important to say upfront very early on that what you read in the docket is not, especially for historians, necessarily reliable at all. And so there is a warning on the docket, and Charlie can talk a little bit more about it, I think, that people should not take these documents at face value. I like to remind people that on September 10th, America was pretty damn dumb about Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And then on September 12th, they started learning. And I think in the arc of these documents and these um, intelligence assessments, you see sort of the naivete and at times the real genuine lack of understanding of society over there, Islam, and the roles that people played in certain cultures coming through these American analysts' documentation. So that was my warning.
1: Yeah, the, the warnings on the site date back to the period in 2010 or 2011 when Chelsea Manning had leaked various archives of documents to WikiLeaks and then Wikileaks was sharing them with mainstream news organizations. And one of those batches was these threat assessment dossiers from the bush years the military had compiled about some of the detainees. It wasn't still not a complete set, but it was still offered to open a window onto who they thought they had there and who these people were. But there was all kinds of, of garbage in those assessments. There was a lot of like undifferentiated, solid information along with, well, so-and-so detainee, when we gave him a cheeseburger, said this other guy was at a, a training camp. And, uh, you know, people were accused of being senior bodyguards to bin Laden who were like 17 years old at the time, and there was no way they were even allowed to get close to someone like that. And But it was all kind of going into these circa 2005, 2006, 2007 dossiers. Um, and so I remember, uh, this is before Carol joined the Times, the docket was there. The docket had gone up in 2008, I think, and we proposed putting those documents, those leaked, still classified documents, onto the onto the the, the website. And there was a policy discussion inside the Times about whether we were going to do that. I was strongly pushing for it, and we did do that uh, as a sort of repository of what was knowable about these people. But we later got complaints from some advocates for those detainees as the Obama administration was trying to find countries willing to take them in, especially the Yemenis I talked about who could had to go to the third countries, couldn't go home. Because people would read those dossiers and be like, this is the worst person in, the world, in, those, in those receiving countries and be like, get scared of them or think there's going to be local political backlash because they said these terrible things, a lot of which the U.S. government had decided was not true by then. And that's one of the reasons these people were were being released, because they, they realized that certain jailhouse informants were not reliable sources of true information or just working the system to get better treatment and other things, you know, people were not, could not have been where they were accused of being and so forth. And there was actually a request that we unpublish those documents because they were full of lies, essentially. And we weren't going to unpublish the information, but that was the point in which we started putting, a disclaimer on that particular set of documents saying this stuff may not be true. this is an official government document, but the government may not have gotten some of this stuff right
2: and that's why the update of the docket that happened in the past year or so was so important because we added new intelligence assessments and and, and if people take the time to go through them in the chron- in the chronology, they'll discover that updated intelligence assessments in some instances completely discredited the earlier ones when we first heard that these documents had been leaked and they were coming um, to the public. I also, when I was at the Herald, spent some time with them before they were made public. I remember getting phone calls from defense lawyers who were absolutely stricken because habeas counsel, because they felt that this was the worst case version of what intelligence officials used to justify the detention of people there who they didn't necessarily know who they were. And they were they were beside themselves because they were trying to make arguments in federal court and in home countries that these just people deserve to be released. And this massive information came out that was quite damning. And Charlie's right. Of course, nobody's going to take it down. But it is, a wor- it is a worthwhile to remind people that early intelligence was bad intelligence.
1: One of the things that drove me a little bit crazy was of the 240 or so detainees who were still there on January 20 of 2009, when Obama takes over from Bush, they, Obama had these set of executive orders about Guantanamo, one of which set up a detainee review task force of six agencies that scrubbed the government's files and, and brought together all the known information about each of those 240 guys and came up with a new dossier that was that in many cases was that was the bureaucratic mechanism by which they officially decided that some of the Claims of in the Bush years against these people were wrong. Like, you know, the CIA had information that contradicted what the Defense Department had or something like that. So those dossiers weren't leaked though. They didn't exist yet when Chelsea Manning was doing her thing, or at least they hadn't been uploaded into the computer system she was downloading stuff from. A lot of uh, detainees who have gotten out talked about how hard it is to get away from the reputation of them existing on the internet of these materials, which. Times is not the only one that hosts, everyone has it now because of WikiLeaks, but the docket is a high profile version of it. I I visited one former Yemeni detainee in Estonia, who what he really wants, he told me, was for the government to say he's not who it accused him of being. He'd been a teenager, uh, one of these teenagers at the time he was captured. These new dossiers from the 2009 task force in some ways would be that for some people, including this guy in Estonia. Uh, that said, we don't believe this stuff about him anymore, let's find a place to get rid of him. But the government, the Obama administration refused to release those um, in response to a FOIA lawsuit I brought and wouldn't do so either as a, just as a matter of policy discretion. And I, I still hope at some point that those will be made public and can be added to the dossier. And some courses, of course, those revised dossiers may confirm some stuff. But to the extent the government no longer believes things about certain people, I think it would be better for everyone if it would say so publicly.
0: And, and what do you think the reason that they won't release the information is?
1: Well, a lot of it is still based on classified sources and methods. I mentioned it comes from CIA files as well as other, you know, NSA files. is not just sort of uh, detainee interrogations that get both by the military, as the the Bush era stuff is from. To the extent that those dossiers do confirm that some stuff was what they still think is true about people, you know, it could be a double edged sword. It could cut both ways generally I think they're just not in the business of being transparent about stuff like that unless they're forced to, and so no one's forcing them to.
0: But if you had to assess, now that it's been through this revamp and there are these new documents that keep coming to light, the accuracy of it, even with all of the, you know, (laughs) warnings, um, and there was a historian going in to use these documents, you know, do you think the, the story of Guantanamo that could be told, for, certainly it's better than it was in the past, you know, what we could learn. But, you know, if you were assessing how reliable it is, how would you, how would you assess it?
2: I don't think a historian could evaluate many of the detainees based on the strength of those leaks. And I don't think they should. And I don't think they would. I think they'd look elsewhere. But one of the things we tried to do in there is um, in addition to the DOD documents, there are some court documents linked. There's some news articles. There's some um, information about these people after they were released. So it's not it's not perfect. And I'd like to get more details on it. But we tried to sort of beef up the individual profile, the individual pages of people to, in in a way, Ameliorate the notion that they were these people as profiled in two thousand and four through two thousand and eight in those very colorful uh, they're called dabs I think
0: what value do you see in looking at the materials about these detainees who have been released what what value does the docket hold for that going forward
1: one of the problems in talking about Guantanamo is that there's a huge range of people who were there or, or still are there or were ever there in the first place there there are genuinely horrible people who are there like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed the you know architect of 9/11 is there one of the worst terrorists in history there also genuinely were you know completely innocent people who were sort of swept up by mistake in the chaos of Afghanistan and there were sort of minor foot soldier types who were just kind of went over to Afghanistan or were, uh, before 9-11. So none of this stuff was happening yet because they were interested in fundamentalist Islam and or maybe we're going to help fight the Northern Alliance, but mm-hmm. you know didn't know anything about the United States. Mm-hmm. And then there were sort of people, a range of people in between all those things. And the people who are pro Guantanamo, if there is such a thing, you know, talk about it as if everyone who was there is the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed types and people who are, Critics of Guantanamo tend to talk about it as if everyone there is an innocent goat herder who is just sort of taken in a tremendous injustice. Um, And, you know, it's all true and all not true at the same time, because uh, they're all there and or they all were there, at least a lot of the lowest level people are are gone now. Uh, But even among the people who were released, you know, most of the people who were released, even in the sort of Wild westy Bush years, did indeed go on to leave quiet lives and haven't really been heard from since. Uh, But some of them ended up uh, rejoining uh, or joining in the first instance, you know, terrorist groups and, you know, were heard from again, let's say. And that's both of those things are simultaneously true. Uh, And so to the extent that you know some of these things and can distinguish that these aren't just an undifferentiated mass of people but are individuals who have their own uh, stories, it's helpful. To to acknowledge and engage with that complexity,
0: Carol. Twenty nine of the people who have been let out died. Um, another nine died at Guantanamo. But of those twenty nine, is there anything you can say about how they died, or was it because of poor health from being at Guantanamo?
2: I don't know if there's a, anything to say about the, the the category of the dead, except that it's comp- it is very incomplete, and I would love to be able to get more attention on the on the that section, because it will only be with cooperation and help from people, particularly former detainees, um, that we'll be able to fill that out. When the docket came out, a number of detainees became aware of it. You know, the last probably 100 men who left Guantanamo, maybe a a few more, have, have, have strong presence in social media, or Twitter, tweeters and Facebookers and posting and People I know looked at their entries with great interest. And in some instances, you know, one detainee said, why did you put this article with that person when I was in it too? And and they have a sense of what their identity should be in the docket of the New York Times. Now, obviously, they don't get to um, decide what we include, but the fact that people for example, one of the things I've tried to do is update photos because the photos that appeared in the original docket were these booking photos on one of the worst days of the lives of these men when they were in process at Guantanamo after this, you know, incredibly- Deprivation. Sensory, <laughs> deprived, long shackled flight from Afghanistan by way of Istanbul, Turkey. They go through processing and they get their pictures taken. And they, you know, the worst booking photos you've ever seen have come out of these. Um, and so if we have more recent pictures of what they look like now, or what they more looked like then, the uh, effort has been to make the pictures more um, realistic. And that's another flaw in the docket. We don't have photos of more than of about half of them, which, you know, we welcome contributions as long as they're reliable.
0: So. I'm assuming that this is a project that that's a living document, it's interactive, it changes, it can, can change constantly. Do you think that this is something that will, and I'm assuming the answer is yes, um, but will outlive Guantanamo?
2: It should, but you, but Karen, this is you assuming Guantanamo closes.
0: Well, that's my next question. As we have this this archive, this live, what I call a living archive, I'm curious from both of you. You spent so much time writing about, thinking about, interviewing about foiling documents about about Guantanamo, and yet it doesn't really seem to see an end point. Um, not because Obama didn't want to close it, but because he. Couldn't do it. Biden's taken a number of steps, and his press people have made a number of statements to say they want to close Guantanamo. Do you think it's going to close during this administration? That's the time frame Biden gave himself. It should close by the end of his administration. What do you think?
1: Well, I, you know, notwithstanding the fact that they've made, they'll make statements like that if asked. Are you going to? Do you still intend to close Guantanamo? Right. Yes, we do. Um, right. they, this has not been one of the things that they put a lot of political muscle under behind in their first 7 months of authority they're trying to get out of Afghanistan a little bit famously right now and they're dealing with covid and they're you know and this was a a campaign promise of Barack Obama's that is an albatross on his legacy and recognizing how hard it is i don't think they want to necessarily make it a core promise of the biden years even though that is what they'll be working toward, if not ever getting there. So I think that they do think that they will succeed in winnowing another 10 or 12 guys out of there. But there's always going to be the problem of what they sometimes call the irreducible minimum of the people who under no circumstances are ever going to leave American custody. People like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, not leave it alive, that is.
0: Leaving aside the the military commission's individuals, who else would be in that category in your mind of those who are just not releasable?
1: Well, I don't want to deem, as long as there's one, then the problem exists of whether Guantanamo stays open or whether one or more people is moved to some other prison.
0: In some other country.
1: Right, Right now, it is against the law to bring anyone from Guantanamo into the United States. The current annual Defense Authorization Act that went through this that Congress is debating would be the place where uh, that law would be changed. Right now there is democratic control, barely, but democratic control of both chambers of Congress. And it appears that the Senate version of that bill does not have any change. In fact, it is the case that the Senate version of that bill does not have any change to that. And therefore in conference committee, it's not gonna change. So at least for the next year, that law is going to remain in place. And that is a strong sign that there was not a, a, a political effort out of the White House to use some of their capital on the hill to try to change that. Um, you know, query anyway though, whether it actually matters. What is the problem with Guantanamo? Is if there is a problem with it? Is the problem that there are wartime detainees being held indefinitely in Cuba, or is the problem that you're holding people indefinitely um, without trial or only subject to the dysfunctional military commission system. If it's the latter, which obviously it is, and you just take that policy and move those people and continue to hold them under the same, you know, legally controversial conditions in some other prison, you haven't really closed Guantanamo. You just moved Guantanamo to a place with a different brand name. And so to some, you know, there aren't gonna be new detainees that look like this and are held under these conditions and are not easily uh, tried or sent to some third country. But for these guys, it's hard to see how uh, at least some of them don't remain under these conditions there or somewhere else until they die of old age.
0: Well, I would say that means we're not closing Guantanamo. You're right. Whatever you call it, whatever, wherever they are, whatever name. Carol, do you agree with that?
2: I would say that from the outside looking in, the administration has not done the things it needs to do to suggest that it's on the path to um, either moving Guantanamo or closing Guantanamo or even, in my opinion, reaching that irreducible minimum. And I don't believe that um, what's happened in Afghanistan in the past period is helpful to this because uh, one of the people who could potentially be released is an Afghan, and I don't think there's ever to be any will to be, even though he was belonging to a different militia, I just feel that there's not going to be a lot of will to let anyone go into Afghanistan. I think there's a possibility, if the Americans can develop certain relationships with the Saudis, that the Saudi rehabilitation program could become a future site for some of the people that the Americans don't want to keep, but don't want sort of free to roam the world. So, you know, they would need to develop relationships in order to park people in places that they considered to be semi-secure. But again, there's from the outside looking in, they haven't put together the architecture to get even close to closing it.
1: Although, you know, there's a weird thing about the the current collapse of the government in Afghanistan and Taliban retake over the country, which echoes ironies, Available by looking at the state of play in Yemen or other countries where there's just a lot of Islamic fundamentalist militants running around, which is that, with the exception of a few individuals who are super duper leaders and architects and skillful planners like a KSM, for the most part, it, there's an absurdity of this. Like you know, the Taliban are have retaken over all of Afghanistan, and they're in every city and they're in every countryside. What difference could it possibly make to have that last guy in American prison versus just plunked back down over there? Obviously, it makes no difference at all. It's adding a grain of sand, would be adding a grain of sand to the beach, a drop of water to the ocean. But there is a political and a bureaucratic risk aversion problem once somebody is in custody, even if there's 50,000 otherwise identical people still running around the world. Uh, not in custody, which is once someone is in custody, a particular person has to make the decision to let them go, a person with a name and a career. And if that person who is let go later, you know, shows up doing something bad, even if there was 50,000 other people who could have replaced him doing that bad thing, and so it doesn't actually matter, that one person will be blamed that letting the detainee out. And so risk aversion means that, No one wants to be the person who let anyone out, even if it's not going to have a practical impact
0: on the world.
2: You know, when they first got there, they took DNA samples. The FBI collected DNA samples on these people. And it is the worst nightmare of some bureaucrat that a former detainee turns up in some sort of horrific suicide bombing. And when they scrape the DNA off the ceiling of the building or whatever, and it turns out he was he was at Guantanamo and they let him go, there will be hell to pay. It may not be fair, but this is the way Guantanamo has operated for a very long time. There is a point in which people age out and they do not become those suicide bombers, but they do emerge as political leaders or prominent people. And you know the anger and confusion that's going on in the United States in certain sectors right now over the rise of the Taliban um, illustrates that letting people go so that they can reemerge as political leaders is is not so simple.
0: So in a way, when people talk about is the era of 9/11 coming to a close? You know, are we winding down the post-9/11 war on terror? The kind of risk aversion and even fear that you're talking about would indicate that no we're not there yet. Because to Charlie's point about if if somebody's back in Afghanistan, given what's happened in Afghanistan, what would it matter? And to Carol's point about how it doesn't matter. It's the the one thing, the one possibility that could happen. If we're still living in that paradigm, how far have we moved from the beginning of the war on terror?
2: They're just 39 people. are 39 (laughs) people, some of whom don't, probably need to be there. I mean, the governments, the administrations and Bush have decided some of them don't need to be there. And there are 39 people who had the CIA CIA not taken some of them off to the black sites for interrogation been able to be charged and processed in federal courts. I mean, the era of the 9-11 roundups and um, giant sweeps and POW collections and calling them enemy combatant I suspect is behind us, dangerous to say it, but you know, Guantanamo is not this teeming camp of unknowns. They kind of know who they have there and they know who they want to go and they just don't know how to get them out.
0: Charlie, how do you see the military commissions playing out? I mean,
1: I think you would have to be unbelievably optimistic to look at the demonstrated history of the military commission system and attempting to do anything other than take a guilty plea from someone who's willing to forego trial and reach a result over the past decade and a half to think that somehow they're going to start working now. its It's been a complete failure. When military commissions were put in place by the Bush administration, the argument was these are kangaroo courts, these are victors justice, this is not really the rule of law where defendants are gonna get a fair shake. And there was this sort of civil liberties, individual rights versus security argument. And that argument has been eclipsed years and years ago by a simple pragmatic argument, which is whether they're fair or not, they don't work. They're just dysfunctional, they cannot get to trial. It's too hard to build a new court system from scratch when every single procedural issue is therefore open for litigation and debate, even before you add all the difficulties of trying to hold a court in this remote location and people having to fly in, even before you add a pandemic on top of that, even before you add all the issues surrounding the government's attempts to keep secret, still issues about the torture of some of these guys in CIA custody and where it happened and so forth. Years and years ago, someone said to me, commissions don't work. It, I think there's been broad recognition of that by almost everyone. And yet, uh, they because you can't bring these guys to the United States for a civilian trial because, until Congress changes that law, and for demagogic regions, reasons that isn't happening, you know, this is the only thing they got. So it just keeps limping along, the wheels keep spinning, but uh, I'm not optimistic that it's suddenly gonna become a smashing success.
2: My answer to that is I'm waiting to see who the new prosecutor is. The long-serving prosecutor, Mark Martins, General Martins, has put in for retirement, is pretty much done. And a new prosecutor may take an approach uh, that's more inclined to do deals, that's more inclined potentially to the dismay and horror of the victim families to take death off the table and not make it and make it a life sentence rather than a capital sentence and i think in some of those ways you might be able to find your way through to the other side through pleas charlie's probably right in his pessimistic view but the as the reporter who has who goes down there and covers them the hearings do have value they give us windows into uh, what's going on at the prison, what's going on in the dark site, and windows into sort of filling in patchwork of history that we haven't been able to get elsewhere. So while it, as it may not be, as he says, a smashing success in terms of uh, getting results, the hearings are quite interesting and at times newsworthy.
1: I totally agree that they're newsworthy and, and, and do crack open windows onto things, and it's it's a great service. Carol, that you continue to go down there and cover them in person, when no one else has done that year in and year out the way you have, is because that's just not their stated purpose. Of course, they're you know they're not there to provide transparency into what's going on in the prison. They're there to try to get to a death sentence on Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And another reason that I'm a little bit pessimistic even about this, you know, the scenario Carol outlines is what if you had a prosecutor and a convening authority who are more willing than they have been, or one or both have been in the past, to Strike a plea deal, say uh, life in prison, skip a trial, plead guilty. It is the case that in two thousand eight, those guys were on the wanted to plead guilty. And one of the great mistakes of the Obama administration, in retrospect, was not allowing that to. Who dis- was that? Uh, KSM and the other nine eleven defendants. to right. That was unresolved. It was unclear whether you could plead guilty, et cetera. One of the infinite things that starting a new court system from scratch left un- unanswered when the Obama administration took over and basically shut down the tribunals to reconsider what policy they wanted to have. And then they ultimately changed the rules of the tribunals and revived them again. But by then those guys weren't willing to plead guilty anymore. And a a question now is why would they plead guilty? Because they're sitting there in these cells with nothing else going on in their lives. and 10, 12, 13 more years have passed the fact that they're on trial or in pretrial hearings gives them something to think about. It means they have lawyers coming down to meet with them. They've got things that they're to read. They're allowed to keep stuck in their cell for their cases. The world is still paying attention to them. Carol Rosenberg in the New York Times is writing articles and putting their names in the paper. If they plead guilty and just dis- disappear into a hole until they die of old age, all that goes away. And I, so I don't see why, especially since there doesn't seem to be any Uh, realistic progress towards an actual guilty verdict and death penalty sentence that then is upheld upon infinite years of appeals, if we ever get that far, I don't see why they would give up all that attention and interaction with the world and with their lawyers uh, just to make things easier on the U.S. government. This is probably the number one entertainment they have. Uh, So that's another reason I am pessimistic.
2: Carol? Carol? I have a little bit of a different view of this. One is that when they were poised to, quote unquote, plead guilty, what they really wanted to do was recite a manifesto and be taken out back and be shot as martyrs. I think once they came to understand the system, they understood that pleading guilty was not Making some sort of declaration of a jihad to the world, but actually was going to require them to account for their activities and do what they call an allocution. And that was not in the offing. It also was not, by the way. It was not available in the format for the courts. But I don't think that when people said they were prepared to plead guilty, it was it it was precisely that, and that I think that's why it didn't happen. But there is well, at least one of them who never goes to hearings, shows up on the first day if he's forced. And the others, I think, have wearied of them. I don't I understand that it, it is attractive to some of these people to be the center of attention and have attorneys who come and go. But, you know, they spent a year in a more than a year in a pandemic without the lawyers um sending them notes, and they've learned to be on their own. That doesn't mean that there probably aren't advantages to having capital defense teams. But I think that there are ways to make, guilty pleas possible, including they seem to have this incredible fear of being put in the supermax in in Colorado. Now, nobody should be negotiating the terms of their detention, but there are aspects of their detention that might be, I mean, other people who pleaded guilty have gotten quote-unquote perks and access to certain materials as long as they are not dangerous and, you know, cooperating with their captors. I'd like to think that there's a way to get this thing resolved before the next 20 years. And we do know if they ever find a way to get it to trial, and if they ever find a way to get the evidence in that allows for a, a death sentence, the, then the whole thing will be played out again over again in the, in the federal courts as they decide whether the contamination of the torture that took place in the three and four years they were sidelined on the road to Guantanamo makes it impossible to seek, to achieve their execution. So, it's not like getting somehow it's a trial and a conviction is the end of the story. It's only the middle.
0: Yep. It's amazing how much the entire conditions and even you know the reporting on and the understanding of Guantanamo is in limbo. And I think that, you know, the the detainees they are the idea that they're in limbo Right. Even though, you know, maybe Charlie's right that the conviction and being, you know, put into prison without the kind of access to their cases, their lawyers, et cetera, the conversations they're having may be a factor. There is also something about being in limbo for them individually, not to mention what you've both referred to, which is the kind of. Quagmire that the government has gotten itself into—that it would be healthy in numerous respects to end. So, which brings me back to the beginning, which is the Guantanamo uh, docket. If you could have one ca- category of thing that's not in the Guantanamo docket that you could access either through FOIA or through, you know, just finding it uh, somehow, what's the area of information you feel would be the most beneficial, and maybe I think the most um, trustworthy given what you've said about how how so much of this information is is questionable
1: i'll just refer back to my what i was mentioning earlier about the reports compiled by the 2009 six agency guantanamo review task force that went over all the evidence and decided which of it was reliable and which of it was not and resulted in recommendations to Release a fair number of people, but also recommendations to put others on trial if that would prove to be possible or hold them as dangerous but not triable. Much, much better, at least, reflection of what the government currently believes to be true about these people. And so, you know, it's still, it still may or may not be true, but at least it's what the government actually thinks now as opposed to what they thought in 2005. I think it would be a service uh, to the world to put those 240 or so dossiers out there. I didn't fight it, FOIA lost for it and did fail, but maybe um, as a matter of policy discretion, someone who listens to this might say, you're right, we should put that out because it will help those we did let go and who have resettled and are truly just trying to live out their lives in peace now, like that guy I wrote about in Estonia. Have something to point to to say, I'm not the person that this other thing says I was. And if you're thinking about whether to hire me for a job or not, here's something else. Uh, which actually, actually, accurately reflects uh, what the government ultimately decided. I was.
2: I think that's correct, and I think that's fair, and, and it's aspirational. That was fantastic,
0: you guys. It was actually great. Thank you so, 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 so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's conversation, a part of our special series on 9-11, 20 years later. Our thanks to Ed Strauss and Sally Spooner for their generous support of the series. Special thanks as well to Kasia Brusallian for editing content production, to Julia Tedesco for management, and to Tom Lavashekia and his team at X Factor Media for the production. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Send us your feedback at vitalinterestpodcast.org and follow us on Twitter at VIP underscore CNS. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to Vital Interest on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Karen Greenberg.